Well, uh, this morning I'm going to continue in Kellen's series. We're doing a little bit of Luke study, uh, which I was pretty happy about because in our church family right now we're working through the book of Mark. Uh, so we're going section by section. And so there's obviously some things that we can compare between Mark and Luke, just the different writings um, about this person of Jesus in the Gospels. And what the Gospel means is good news. So anything we read about Jesus is going to be what? Good news. It's going to be incredible news. Uh, in the first century, good news or a gospel was something that was compared to when a messenger would come into a city and announce this big anointing or would announce this big uh, announcement. It wasn't simply like, oh, look at the news that's in the paper. No, that's just kind of daily things. This is good news, big deal news. And Jesus um, is a big deal. Now, what we believe about Jesus is that Jesus was fully God yet fully human. The scriptures are very, very clear about this. Jesus himself says multiple times that he is the son of man, the son of God. And people guess upon him and say, are you the promised Christ? And he says, yes, I am. Now what this means is this word that goes like this. It's incarnation. Can everyone say incarnation? Incarnation, incarnation literally means to take on flesh. To take on flesh. That God, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What this means is that Jesus was this incredible missionary that came to our world, this broken world. And so what then we believe as Christians is that we are to see all of ourselves as missionaries. That we are on mission to the world that we live in, to the neighborhoods that we've been placed in into the region and cities. So what this means is that missionaries aren't solely people that go to other cultures and other places, that each and every one of us can consider ourselves missionaries. And so we take it to heart that we should be thinking, how am I going to be a missionary to this place that I have been placed in? Now my wife and I, um, we didn't live that way. I'll just be completely honest with you. We didn't live that way. Uh, following my time at Tyndale University College and Seminary, uh, I wanted to get the quickest and the best job I could find. And so I took one, and it was a great job, and I worked at this church for about four and a half years. But during my time there, God started laying it on my heart. I think the real thing that he was laying on my heart was a heart for lost people. People that weren't just coming to the physical church, but were out there in the world. And I was starting to learn more about how God sent Jesus as the first missionary, and then wanted us to then go and be missionaries. That Christianity is more about go and tell than come and see. And so what I love about your church community is that from the very forefront of somebody walking in here, they find themselves in a community coffee shop. So that our culture will come and they will be part of this community and then be attracted to the person of Jesus. Because as we'll learn today, Jesus is in and of himself attractive. We don't need to change him. He is Attractive. And so what we began to learn is that God was calling us to be missionaries in the world that we lived in. And up until that point, we were continually leaving our neighborhood to go out to our church building, and we weren't remaining in our neighborhood to really be the hands and feet of Jesus there. And so uh, there was this conference that I went down to in Atlanta called Catalyst Conference. And while there, I went to this breakout lab session called Leading from the Difficult Places. And I thought it was about challenges and leadership. Uh, there was a team that maybe didn't want to follow me, so I was trying to learn how am I going to get them to follow me. And what became very apparent as I walked into the session, sat down, was squished between two people on either side of me, was that that session was not about that at all. 
and God wanted me there. Uh, what the session was about was three people who had sold their homes and had moved uh, to priority neighborhoods or higher needs neighborhoods to plant churches. And I remember sitting there thinking, these people are awesome. And then God's saying to me, well, why couldn't you do that? And I was like, well, I was convicted right there. And then at the end of the session, someone said, how do you get people in your congregation to live missionally, to think of themselves as missionaries in our culture? And the woman said, you've got to do it first. You've got to lead them. And so I told my wife that night, she wasn't in the session with me. Can you imagine uh, your husband coming to you and saying, yeah, we've got to sell our house and move to a priority neighborhood of our city. Yeah, okay. And I'm a fairly passionate person. So sometimes I get my mind on something and then I'm like, we got to go do it. But then two weeks later, it kind of filters out. So I think there was part of her that was like, maybe this will like fizz out after a couple of weeks. Um, but it didn't fizz out. And so we made the decision, we're going to move. We're going to uproot ourselves, move somewhere else. Um, and then over the next couple of months, God revealed that part of that move was going to be planting a church. Um, and really being the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground, getting to know our neighbors. And so the model of our church now is we have these different family groups in different neighborhoods that see themselves as missionaries to those neighborhoods. So one of the things that they do is they welcome people in for meals once a week. So our neighbors are constantly in our home. And, and God has been so gracious and has been showing us favor uh, so that we've had to multiply a few times out of our home. So now we have multiple dinners going on in our neighborhood, and then God saw it fit to also birth in another neighborhood of our city, the extended family of Church of the Ward. They're called East City, and they're having potluck dinners and welcoming their neighbors into there. And uh, by the grace of God, we've seen um, half a dozen, uh, about eight people come to Christ in the last uh, seven and a half months. And the, many of these people are not people that would come and see there are people that needed to receive the message by going and telling. Now, isn't it beautiful that Jesus exemplifies this for us? So the incarnation, one, if we were to say, why did Jesus come to this earth? I think every single one of us, if you've been around the church very often, would probably say, well, to die for our sins. And that is absolutely true. But it begs the question, then, why then did he live a life on earth prime to dying for our sins? Why didn't that happen immediately? I mean, he was perfect, so he could have taken that on. And so the second part of the incarnation is to show us how to live. To show you and I how to live. And so when we examine the Gospels and we examine what is written in Luke, what we're really trying to figure out is, how am I to live? So some of us maybe have had in the past uh, WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? And, and Jesus was perfect, and that's good. But I like to ask the question, what would Jesus have you do based upon what he exemplifies for us in the scriptures? Okay, so what would Jesus have you do? Um, today, as we work through, we're going to be in Luke, as I said, we're going to start in Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. We need to constantly be asking ourselves the question, Jesus, as you live, show me how to live in my culture, in my world, in my neighborhood, that I might understand you better and then desire to see others get to know this Jesus. Because people, maybe don't know this, but people actually like Jesus. There's not a lot of people that really have a huge issue, as I've found so far, with Jesus. I mean, the culture that we live in now has been, was very, is very affected by the teachings of Jesus. So not a lot of people have issues with Jesus. A lot of people have this issue with God. And Jesus says, you can't know the Father unless you know me. So if you run into people and they're, they're upset with God, you need to make sure that they understand that they can't understand God the Father unless they understand who Jesus is 
And then that reshapes how people think of God. So sometimes when people, someone will say to me, I don't believe in God, I'll say, well, neither do I. And they'll be like, what do you mean? And I'll say, well, the God that you believe in probably isn't the God that I believe in. So let's have a conversation about who you believe God is. And I'll tell you who I believe God says he is through the person of Jesus. And then we'll have a conversation. And people actually respond quite well to that. Someone else also said, oh, I don't really like church all that much. And I said, to be honest, neither do I. And he said, what do you mean? You're a pastor. And this was at a after a funeral that I had done. And, um, and, I, and he said, but you're a pastor. And I said, yeah, but again, uh, what you think of church is different than I think of church and what it's supposed to be. So again, let's have a conversation about what you believe church is. And then I'll explain to you what I believe the church is and is to do. And it's amazing because he's like, okay. And then I started sharing with him the heart of God, I believe, to what is the church, which is the family of God. And we get a great explanation of this first church in Acts 2, 42 to 47. We eat together and we love one another. The fact we're going to have pancakes and sausage is right from, like, what Jesus did. Jesus ate with people. So this is beautiful. Very, very beautiful. So that all said is kind of a way of introduction. Let's go to Luke 5, verses 1 to 11. Um, a little bit of context. Up to this point, Luke 1 through 4, the word of Jesus is spreading rapidly. Uh, people are coming from far and wide to listen to be healed and be taught by Jesus. Jesus is unlike any other rabbi that they have ever met or experienced. Um, just a little note on the synagogue ministry of Jesus. When he would go to towns, rabbis were known for cycling or circling through different synagogues. And Jesus shows up in this one synagogue um, and he starts teaching. And people say right away, this man teaches with authority. Now the word authority in the Greek is exousia. And what this literally means is that the, that the rabbis who would come through would often quote what other rabbis were saying. So they'd say, Moses said this, or this other rabbi said this. But Jesus just stands and straight up teaches them with authority. He just says, this is the way that it is. And everyone's like, whoa, he has authority. He knows what's going on. And so this word of Jesus is spreading rapidly. All right, so... That's kind of the, what's going on before. We see his power over demonic forces, over diseases, and all these different things. So Luke 5, verses 1 to 11, I study it. You generally use the ESV, uh, English Standard Version, so that's what I'm going through today. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Uh, Gennesaret is also the Sea of Galilee. So here's a map. That'll kind of give us a bit of context, context to where we are. Uh, Jesus, uh, much of his uh, early um, time uh, doing ministry was spent in Galilee. So you'll see the Sea of Galilee there. You'll see Capernaum, which is um, in Mark is described as Jesus' hometown, um, his later hometown. We, we read that he's from Nazareth, but Capernaum ends up becoming his home. And so he's in this northern part uh, of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he is, in, in Gennesaret. And while there, he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So here's the scene. Jesus is standing, teaching. People are coming to him. So much so that it's obvious he doesn't have enough room to simply stand on the beach. 
And so what Jesus does is he sees a couple of boats, so he thinks, I'll get into the boat. We'll let it out a little bit. It's kind of like his teaching platform so that everybody can see me, everyone will be able to hear me, and then they'll know what it is that's going on. Now, a little bit of context. Uh, fishing uh, in this context and in this time of uh, history is a thriving business. Fish was the main source of protein in Palestine. All right, so fishing is a thriving business. At the time of Jesus, there was about 500,000 people uh, living in Palestine. Uh, when fish, when the fishermen would go and catch the fish and bring them ashore, the fish needed to be separated into clean and unclean based upon the Jewish laws of Leviticus. Uh, anything with scales, they would keep. Anything without scales, like catfish and things like that, they would throw aside. They were unclean. Now, fishermen in the day, this is going to be key as we study who is Jesus choosing here. Uh, fishermen were savvy entrepreneurs. They were multilingual, which means they could speak multiple different uh, languages. They were hardworking, patient, uh, had a keen eye for business, and they were smart. Um, and most fishermen sublet um, their fishing companies through wealthy businessmen that were given and sold the fishing by Philip Herod which is one of the leaders at the time from Rome. So this wealthy businessman would receive the fishing company and the land from Herod, and then he would sublet it out to these local fishermen who would then be taxed a lot of money. And so these fishermen don't really like the tax collectors, which when, then when Jesus chooses Matthew as a tax collector, it's like completely countercultural. All right? And they oversaw all aspects of business. Now, in that day, there's three main kinds of fish. All right? We have the sardines, um, which maybe you like sardines. We have the binny, which is, a, which is car in the carp family. It's well-fleshed and it's common at feasts and for Sabbath. Uh, we have also the musht, which is spelled M-U-S-H-T. So I'm guessing it's mush, but if you uh, know differently, then you can let me know. And now these ones were large fish. Some were 16 inches long and they weighed about two pounds. Now these were typically tropical fish, so at this time of year, they would have gone to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee because the springs would release water into the Sea of Galilee, and so they were up in kind of the shallower waters. So fishermen, this is obviously good for them because these larger fish are coming up to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and this was a good time for them to fish. Now, a little bit more context. There's four different kinds, or there's several methods for fishing in the day. Uh, some people would actually fish with their bare hands. Like, can you imagine going out there... Got it, right? So some fish with their bare hands, uh, some with wicker baskets, there are other different kinds of fish traps, uh, some with spears and harpoons. But then the most common uh, way of fishing in the day was net fishing, and one of these was called the drag net, which was a 300, 300 feet wide net, and then 12 feet deep, which had sinkers on the bottom, and then uh, they were floating at the top um, with cork. So this was the net, and so what they would do, it would usually take about 16 men to do this type of fishing, and they would drag this net in the water and then encircle the fish and obviously make a big catch. So that was the drag net. There was the cast net, which is a circular, which was about 20 feet in diameter. It had weights, and you need to be a really skilled fisherman to do this, because you're kind of throwing a net over the water. It has to land perfectly so then the weights can perfectly encompass the fish. Now this is kind of, this is the kind of fishing that the fishermen that Jesus approaches here are doing. They're doing the cast net type. Um, just as another piece of context, this is an archaeological dig. And this is what those fishing boats would have looked like, um, obviously in better shape. But this is, um, 
That would be awful to do any level of fishing in, let's be honest. So uh, it would sink, right? So this is the kind of the boat, but obviously over the number of years, it has, uh, it's not as great as it once was. So um, often too, night is the best time to fish. And so the disciples are probably out at this time. Now what we read is that they haven't caught anything, all right? They haven't caught anything. And so Jesus approaches them and says, Simon Peter, let's go back out. And he responds with, okay, okay, master, but it's unlikely, right? Which is, I believe this is put in here because Jesus wants to show them that he's not going to catch it on his will. He's going to catch it on Jesus' will, right? It is completely impossible for a man to do it, but for the God-man Jesus, it was going to be possible. Now, a couple of things just as a note for what are we learning here. Number one, Jesus taught the word of God and people came. People are drawn to the message of Jesus. When they hear about Jesus, they will come. Jesus taught the word of God and people came. This is what we read right at the beginning of that passage. He spoke the gospel, which remember is good news. And so if we are ever speaking something that is not good news, we're probably not speaking the gospel. Because the gospel is the good news of Jesus. The second point about these verses we're starting to study is Jesus used what was close to him to extend the message. He saw this boat there. And these fishermen, and he thought, why don't I get in that to extend the message? So more people can hear, more people can see. Sometimes this is important because when we are trying to share with people Jesus, it's important to maybe look around and say, what would be helpful as I explain this message? This is what Jesus often did with illustrations of saying, look at this over here, look at these sparrows. So he saw what was close to him, and he taught. Uh, Thirdly, people respond to Jesus regardless of their exhaustion, And I would suggest that it's in our exhaustion that we recognize we need Jesus the most. Right? So in this moment, they're exhausted. They've been out fishing and they've caught nothing. But Jesus says, let's go back out, guys. And they say, okay. All right. Let's do it. Let's continue on. Verse 6. And when they had done this, when they go back out to fish, they enclosed a large number of fish. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Luke includes this beautiful detail that the spoil that comes is incredible. More than anybody had maybe ever seen before. Now this is a key point, is that Jesus brings the spoil. Very often, when people start responding to the message of Jesus, and we are involved, we like to take credit for it. But the key message here from Jesus and from this story is that Jesus brings the spoil. There is nothing that these disciples added to to bring this spoil. It was solely Jesus. And then the second point is that Jesus is the Lord of the sea and all that is in it. So while Jesus had the authority over diseases, over demonic, and in his teaching, he also had authority over the sea and all of the fish. How incredible is that, that Jesus has authority over the created nature of what we see around us. When we walk outside today, we can praise Jesus and say, Jesus, I thank you that you are Lord of this too. Isn't that awesome? Very, very cool. Uh, Let's turn, then verse 8 says this. 
This is the response now of Simon Peter to this. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus says to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. What are some points that we can take from this? Is people recognize their sin when they encounter the true Jesus? When you recognize that you have been touched by the living God, by Jesus Christ, I believe that we then encounter and understand that we are sinners. Um, a couple doors down from my wife and I is this, is this guy named Daryl. And Daryl and I have grown an incredible relationship with one another. Uh, he regularly comes over to my house, maybe once a day, sometimes twice a day, and he always does the knock where it's like, do, 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 and so we're always like, Daryl's at the door. <laughs> and so we go to the door, and uh, Daryl comes from a life of, of heavy, heavy drug use, um, and so when Daryl and I first met, he said to me, you're not gonna try to convince me to believe in God, are you? And I said, no. I said, I'll just point you to Jesus, and God will convince you to believe in God. Yeah. And he said, oh, okay. So anyways, we grew in this relationship. He started sharing with me a bit of his story. Um, anyways, over time, uh, I started to recognize this exhaustion that was in Daryl. And so I said, well, Jesus wants to provide you this incredible strength, you realize. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. So do you want to experience this rest, Daryl? And, and he said, yes, I do. And so this day, he came into my house, and right there, he accepted Jesus prayed himself and said, Jesus, I'm going to trust that what Matt says is true, and I'm going to believe you at your word, and so I want to follow you, Jesus. Um, but immediately upon this, this is incredible, I mean, the, the man's now a follower of Jesus, but upon this, there are things in his life that were still going on, all right? When Daryl flipping his life over to follow Jesus um, is enormous, is drastic. I mean, he has life habits that he's developed for the last 47 years. And so I, what I just decided to do is I'm just going to walk with him in this. One of those things was marijuana, and the government has written him a script to use marijuana. And so every time I every time I go into his house, it typically smelled like marijuana. And so the one day I went in there, I said, Daryl, were you smoking that? No, no, no. He kind of like walks away. Anyways, a couple hours later, <laughs> Daryl's at the door. So Daryl comes in and he says, Matt, I feel guilty. And I every time that you come in my house and, and I'm using this. Um, Anyways, I was kind of maybe thinking that I don't need it anymore. What, what do you think? And I said, well, uh, I think you just answered your own question. Um, I don't think maybe you do need it anymore. He said, all right, I'm going to be done with it then. No more. It's like, wow. When people recognize their sin is when they encounter the true Jesus. As his relationship with God grew, he was like, well, this just doesn't make sense anymore. I feel convicted and guilty about this. And for the longest time, Daryl didn't think the Holy Spirit was in him. Because he's like, I don't really feel a lot. But then he kept telling me that he kept feeling guilty and convicted about things. And I said, well, buddy, like, that conviction is the Holy Spirit inside of you. He's like, I can't do all the stuff I used to do anymore without feeling convicted. I was like, well, that's the Holy Spirit. To which he just responded with tears, saying, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. He is inside of me. He is so excited. And uh, at one of our gatherings, he just raised his hand and said, something I'd like to praise God for is that he, he helps us feel guilty when we sin, so that we know it's wrong. 
Like so many of us, I think, just take that for granted. I know I do. But to him, it's like this beautiful thing so that the Holy Spirit allows him to walk and do life. Um, and then the next is Jesus accepts people regardless of their sin and calls them to himself. It would have been simple for when Peter said, no, I'm a sinner. Jesus said, you're right. I better go find somebody else. He says, no, now you're going to be catching men. Come with me. Come on. And they come with Jesus. They leave everything behind them. Their fishing business, their savvy businessmen, their entrepreneurs will leave it to follow this rabbi, Jesus. Um, go with me to Luke 6, 12 to 16. This one's a bit shorter. Um, the context of this one is that Jesus has drawn many crowds. He's quite popular. People are traveling from far and wide, and many disciples or learners are present with Jesus. Uh, and now Jesus decides that he needs to appoint some apostles. All right? So, let's start here. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve who he named apostles. Now, the Greek word for apostles is apostolos. Can we all say apostolos? And apostles is different from disciples. Apostles are messengers or ones, a messenger or one who is sent. And so what we'll, we'll begin to understand, and then these are the names. So verse 14 says Simon, whom he named Peter. I guess Simon wasn't good enough. <laughs> Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. I dare one of you, when you have a baby, to name him Alphaeus. Maybe the couple that's having a wedding shower, you guys can one day. Um, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and then Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Isn't it amazing that, that this continues with Judas, right? We don't even know about it yet, but we read here in Luke that this man will become this traitor. Now, here's a couple points I think we need to notice about this, because as we want to live like Jesus, we need to examine what he did so that we can know what to do. First point, is Jesus spent extended periods of time alone with his father? If you do the context prior, Jesus is very busy. And sometimes when we get busy, we're like, man, I just want to sleep in. Right? Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to spend extended periods of time alone with my father. But I was also referenced to taking a Sabbath, one day a week where you're not feeling like you have to do really anything that feels like work. In the Old Testament, God says you need to take a Sabbath, and if you don't, there will be death. What I believe about our culture and my cultural examination is that while we maybe don't see physical death, although sometimes when people overwork themselves, I believe we're seeing death of relationships, uh, deaths in the family, and more relationships. We're becoming exhausted. We need to be a culture that's further medicated. I believe because of much of the continuing going, going, going. And Jesus says, you've got to spend alone time with your daddy. Go to him. Spend extended periods of time in prayer. Secondly, Jesus calls those whom the Father reveals to him. All right? This is part of the reason, because he's like, these are going to be my messengers. This is really the foundation of the church. So you and I, this is crazy, you and I are in essence the extension of this prayer that Jesus made. Because these were the apostles, the messengers that he was going to send out following his death and resurrection who would really be the foundation to his church. And so you and I now know the message of Jesus and so that has continued to us. 
And so Jesus calls those whom the Father reveals to him. I think this is key when it comes to sharing Jesus with people. To be praying, to be in tune with the Spirit, to say, Spirit, who around me right now do you want me to approach and talk to? Uh, there is this term, the person of peace. Somebody who is receptive to the teachings of Jesus and then us going to these people. That we spend the majority of our time with people who are receptive, who are open to hearing, and then those people are typically influencers in their own cultures. Uh, like this person, Daryl. He now shares with all of these continuing um, uh, drug dealers and things that come into his house. He shares with them the message of Jesus as they come in. And he introduces me as the reverend of the street. And, and I've gotten to know some of these people. It's funny, I go downtown now, and some of the people that are uh, the sellers of drugs will recognize me and kind of go, hey, <laughs> hi there. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious, right? But this is a man that was receptive to the message of Jesus, and so we, I pursued him. And then the next point is that Jesus chose specific people. Jesus said, here they are. Now, some of us might be like, well, that was kind of like, that's not really fair. It's Jesus, all right? Uh, and all fairness stopped after Adam and Eve sinned, right? So if you say, that's not fair, well, we live in a broken world now. It's just the way it is. But Jesus decided, I'm going to choose these very specific 12. Even Judas Iscariot, who became later, what? The traitor, all right? Let's go to our final passage and just make a couple of examinations. Uh, the cost of discipleship, Luke 14, 25 to 35, all right? So go there. Now, this passage is fairly key as well. The context here is what Jesus was just at the Pharisees' house, and great crowds are following him, all right? He's continuing in his popular popularity, and people are following him. He's not excited about their enthusiasm, as many of them simply want to see miracles, overthrow Rome, feed the hungry, be fed themselves, and are not necessarily very interested in spiritual things. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to his death. Therefore, he is not asking us to do anything that he has already done himself as we study this passage. Start at verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds are following this man, Jesus. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These are heavy words. If Jesus wanted anybody and everyone, he would have probably said, this message is for everybody. Believe what you want to believe. Do what you want to do, and you can be my disciple. That's not what he does. Now, the Greek usage of this word hate, it sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? Hate? I gotta hate my family? The rendering is actually to love less. So we love Christ more than what he shares with the family. He then says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Uh, here's a quote. What does it mean to carry the cross? It means daily identification with Christ in shame, suffering, and surrender to God's will. It means death to self, to our own plans and ambitions and a willingness to serve him as he directs. A cross is something we willingly accept from God as part of his will for our lives. Notice his will, not necessarily ours. The Christian who called his noisy neighbors uh, the cross, he had to bear certainly did not understand the meaning of dying to self. What's interesting is my brother um, has this example from his life where he went to Briarcrest uh, College and Seminary to get a Bachelor of Worship Music and Arts. 
And he went there, and he went there to play guitar, learn how to play guitar better, how to sing better. And after his first year, he went to this dance production. His hip-hop dance team is at Briarcrest, and they share the gospel through hip-hop dance. And so he went to one of their first presentations in his first year of school, and he was like, after I watched that presentation, I knew immediately that God wanted me to join the dance team. The guy has never danced in his life prior to that. Like maybe, had a, like maybe did a little boogie at like a wedding or something, but beyond that, nothing. And he was like, he straight up, he's like, I'm not doing it, God. No. He said, then after his second year, God said, I want you to join the dance team. No, God. <laughs> after his third year, he finally said, okay, God, I'll join the dance team. He said, I did not understand when Jesus says deny yourself. He's like, I didn't realize that sometimes he also wanted me to deny the things that I genuinely enjoyed, like playing guitar, for the good of God. His will, not Aaron's will. And to this day, he loves hip-hop dance. He's joining a leadership team uh, in August and September. They're going to be starting a hip-hop dance gospel ministry in this area and in Cambridge and Kitchener. All because he finally obeyed God in that moment and said, God, I'll dance. I'll do the dance thing if this is what you want me to do. Let's continue on. Verse 28. Jesus is now giving some examples. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Ha ha ha. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, some people interpret these two examples as, as us and ourselves needing to examine the cost of what would it take to build a tower? What would it take to live for Jesus? You better understand it. What would it take to go out to war? But others interpret that, that this is Jesus, and in order for Jesus to build his kingdom, he must have the right people to do that with. Either way, it's a challenge to ourselves and our ways of discipleship. Are we up for the challenge? Do we want to be followers of Jesus, or do we simply want to just have, well, I'm saved. Good. Now I can do whatever I want. My belief is that if you solely want salvation, you're missing out on the first fact, which is that Jesus is King and Lord, which means he gets everything from your life. If you understand Jesus as King and Lord, you'll accept him as your Savior. If you understand Jesus as Savior, you'll have lordship and kingship issues for the rest of your life. And we see this often, primarily, I believe, in cultures of people that grew up in the, in the, um, in the church, where they're taught a lot about salvation, but very little about kingship. And so they think, well, I'm saved, so I can go do whatever I want, and I can abuse the grace that I have been given. This is not the message of Jesus. So then Jesus says, verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is a hard teaching. It says this, verse 34, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Wow. It is thrown away. And then he says these words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What are the points that we can take from this incredibly difficult, hard teaching of Jesus? Number one, Jesus continues to attract crowds. When the message of Jesus is proclaimed, I believe crowds will come. For preaching the gospel, crowds will come. Now, Jesus teaches the truth no matter the crowd. Now, the reason this is important is that many of us, we would like to change the message of the truth. 
because there's certain people present in the room that we don't necessarily want to know the truth because we're maybe a little bit worried that if they hear the truth, they won't like the truth. But notice that Jesus, this crowd is gathered from all over the place, and he's turning and saying, listen, it's nice you want to see the miracles, but we're not simply consumers. I'm calling you to be disciples. So no matter who's in the room, he doesn't seem to care about offending people. Remember, Jesus' offense is ended what caused his death. So as followers of Jesus, there's a level of there is going to be things about this message that people aren't going to like. We've got to get over that because God's opinion matters far more than that person's opinion that you're worried about. Next point. Jesus is more about quality than quantity. He wants us to be good disciples. He wants us to be good disciples. He wants us to be good learners and followers. Otherwise, we'll just be nominal. And I believe if we're nominal, we're not going to have an enormous effect. Some uh, study and research was done recently uh, from the perspective of people that don't love nor serve Jesus. And they said, if Christians aren't trying to evangelize to me, I don't really think that they care about the message that they actually proclaim. So while we as Christians over here are like, ah, on the other side, they're like, if they don't say something, they probably don't really believe it is truth. I've run into people that said, who would I be as a person to turn you away when the message that you believe if I don't get it, it's imperative, right? Like, if I don't, like, as atheists, right? Like, atheists typically, are, they just try to de-convince de us that there is a God, right? But if we're right, it's imperative that they understand because if we're right, they will experience the consequences of their sin, which is hell. But if we're right, we're given life eternal with Jesus Christ, and then we live in obedience to that sacrifice. So Jesus is more about quality than quantity. And Jesus isn't afraid of turning people away. Jesus understands that there will be people that will walk away. Remember the rich young ruler that approaches Jesus? And Jesus says, if you aren't willing to sell everything, if you aren't willing, he wasn't saying go, are you willing to sell it? So Jesus isn't afraid of turning people away. Now what does this tell us about what it means to be a disciple? If we want to be followers of Jesus, what does this mean? Well, being a disciple means is loving Jesus supremely above everything else, above the car you drive, above the family that you have, loving Jesus supremely because Jesus, what, gave everything for you on the cross. Jesus does not ask us to do anything that he, which he has not already done himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he loved us supremely. He came to earth, taking the form of a servant, becoming nothing for what? You and me, sinful human beings, he himself perfect. So he loved us supremely and was willing to do that. Being a disciple might may cost you relationship. In Eastern cultures, oftentimes when uh, those in the Muslim faith come to know Jesus Christ, it means complete um, they have to get rid of, be rid of their family, often will say, well, you're no longer part of this family anymore. And there are people out there, because of the name of Jesus, are willing to do that. Uh, in our culture, the North American culture, sometimes that's not the case. But would we be willing to continue to follow Jesus if it meant costing us our family, our immediate family? Would we follow Jesus? <laughs> Jesus seems to say that being a disciple, you have to be willing to do that. Uh, being a disciple is painful, and it may be humiliating. I think we live in a culture, sometimes in the church, where we say, it was a little bit uncomfortable, so I avoided it completely. 
And being a disciple of Jesus is painful, and it will be humiliating. There are going to be times where you're going to say, I don't want to do that. They're going to laugh at me. But if it's obedience to your Savior who died for you and is now king, do it. As hard as it is. And then he empowers you. He's not just like, do it. He empowers you to do it. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. And being a disciple, it's a process. It's not like you're going to hear this message today, you're going to leave and be the perfect disciple. It's like a football field, only like this infinite one, where you get on the, the, the maybe five or ten yard line, you've committed your life to Jesus, and there's days where you take the next ten forward, and then, you know, you get a couple days where you fall back a little bit. But you're like, Jesus, i got to keep going. And you keep going. It's about progress, not perfection. And the next point is it involves counting the cost and paying the price. That there's a level at which when we hear the message of Jesus, we understand truly what it means to be a disciple, that we are able to sit and say, am I willing to do that? And if we're not, then don't. It's clearly what Jesus is saying. I have a lot of respect for atheists because at least they've made up their mind. Right? At least they've said, oh, there's no God, so I'm going to live the way that I want. But how many people out there are that, well, I believe in God, but I'm going to continue doing the things that I want to do? And lastly, being a disciple is involved. <laughs> it's involved. There's things that are going to go on that you're going to be like, wow, this is hard. Like, there are days where I just don't want to answer my door. And there are days that sometimes I don't. I just need to set up that boundary. But sometimes when I'm tired, I just have to open my door and say, hello, what do you need? Because <laughs> it's typically needs. And as followers of Jesus, we continue to give of ourselves. And then, I'm sorry, this is lastly, being a disciple is placing Jesus at the center and loving him more than anything else. I've already said loving him supremely, but placing him at the center uh, typically we think of this in levels of priority, but you're never going to be able to spend as much time alone with Jesus as you do at work, right? Like, it's just not possible. You spend eight hours at work every day, you're going to go home and spend eight hours alone with Jesus? The great thing is that when Jesus is at the center of our lives, everything else comes around him. So when we're at work, we're with Jesus. When we're making dinner, we're with Jesus. When we're sitting here, we're with Jesus. When we walk out the door, we're with Jesus. When we drink coffee, we're with Jesus. This is why when we read is that we're to be praying without ceasing, that we're always with him. And when we center him in our lives, we begin to have conversations with him at all times. And this is what Jesus did with his father. Jesus loves each and every single one of you so incredibly much. I don't know what each of you are coming into with this morning. I don't know the baggage that you dealt with this week. I don't know what you're going to have to deal with when you go back out. Maybe it's your kids. They aren't listening to you. Maybe it's where you live. You're not happy about your living situation. Maybe it's your job. You think if my job were better, everything else would be better. Hear the truth this morning that even if those things were to get better, there would always be something else that continually needs to get better. The only thing that can fulfill that hole in your heart of satisfaction is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. So if this morning you're saying all of those things, I'm weary, I'm tired, turn to Jesus. But just, he's, he is the one that went to the cross for you. He's the one that shows us how to live. And he's the one that leads us each and every single day. If you've never made that decision as a disciple of Jesus to follow him, to give your life to him, that invitation is open to you today. 
Maybe this morning you've been sitting here realizing, as a follower of Jesus, I'm not a very good disciple. There's this thing called grace, which is unmerited. If grace were a gift, it would simply be a reward. But there's nothing in you that deserves this grace, and so that's why we accept it. That's a message the world needs to hear. That is good news. That there's nothing that you've ever done to deserve that, but it's a gift given to you. Isn't that amazing? Amen. He loves you. He pursues you. He's with you now. Before you sin, he says, I already died for the sin you're about to commit. And then if you continue to sin after that, he also says, oh, and I just died for the sin you just committed. I saw it ahead of time. Don't worry, it's covered. I went in that place. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So with the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. I mean, the life that we live is no longer our own, that Jesus literally traded places with us, taking his life upon himself and then giving us his perfect life. So when we stand before God the Father, he declares us innocent. Incredible. Good news. we got to get excited about that. And I believe is that when people start hearing this good news, they respond to it. We're going to see people's lives changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And you won't be able to keep them out of the doors. But that also means that when the crowd is there, you continue to preach. You continue to share the truth that they are sinners and that they need a Savior. But the Savior's already done it. He's already won. 